Heavenly Father, we come to you uh, as those that are grateful for your word. We're grateful for the way that you speak to us. We're grateful that we don't have to figure life out on our own, Father. So uh, we ask that as we get ready to approach your word, that you would give us grace to hear and to understand. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. What do you do when God threatens to steal your joy? When bad things take place or bad things seem like they will, um, I think sometimes it's believers in God that run the greatest risk of harm. So you may be here and you may not believe that God exists. You may believe that God exists and he's just bad and you don't want any part of him. So you may feel like my foundation with God is firm. I know what I believe. But for those of us that believe in God, uh, what you find out is that whatever you believe about God, at least in this life, um, it's still wet cement. It's still hardening, right? We have just enough theology or things right in our mind to know that God lets bad things take place, but we don't have enough faith or experience to piece together how he can be good in letting those bad things take place. So as we think of this last year, we think of the losses, right? Losses of family members or of marriages or loss of potential future family members with infertility or miscarriages, loss of jobs, friendships, loss of dreams, loss of hopes. And what it does is it leaves us conflicted. That as we think about the relationship that we have with God, it puts us in a place where when folks ask us how we're doing, all we can say is it's complicated. What makes it harder is that God doesn't just take things from us, right? It would be hard enough if God just took things from us. What makes it harder is that all of this is true. It's still wet cement about God's goodness in our mind, but God doesn't just take things. God asks us to give things, to surrender. And I have a suspicion that maybe some of you in here have sneaking suspicions about things that you need to let go of. We always start the new year with, all right, there's things that I need to let go of. There's things that God has called me to let go of. And my question stands, what do you do when God threatens to steal or to take away your joy? How do you respond? I imagine that if you struggle with it, you respond in one of three ways. One, um, you argue and fight with God and you don't comply. You just say, nope, this is off limits. There's no way that I can possibly give this up. Or you may comply, but complain the whole time. Well, I gave it up, but God, I'm so mad that you made me give this up. And God gets no glory out of this raw submission. God gets no glory about complaining. Or you may be one that uh, you don't not comply. You don't complain. You comply. You just don't complete it. Right. You start off and say, all right, God, I'm going to give this up. But by March, it's back on your plate again. 
I think we all know how we should respond. We all know that if God calls us to give something up, it's for our good, but it's so hard that sometimes that surrender seems impossible. And so that's what I want to spend our time on as we start this year, just to talk about, right, what is it that makes this impossible surrender that we have with God possible? And so it's the start of the new year. I know there's a bunch of folks in here that have reading plans for their Bibles, right? And so you're at the place right now in your Bible where you're reading things. Um, And it seems like God has called people to do easy things, and they make it look so hard, right? Adam and Eve, don't, like, don't eat. That's all he said. Like, not don't eat at all, just don't eat of this one, right? There's things that are simple that seem so hard. Until we look closer in the story and we find out, ah, that's actually harder than I thought. But then there's things in the Bible that you come across that are incredibly hard, if not impossible, but the characters make it look so easy. And so that's what we want to spend our time on today. Last week, we looked at the life of a man named Joseph who was oppressed by his brothers, sold into slavery, got the power to do them wrong, and he didn't turn into an oppressor. This week, we're going to look not at a man that had to deal with his past, but a man that has to face the future. It's the top of the year, and as we start to face this future, we want to work through how do we successfully take place in this impossible surrender. And for that, I would ask you to turn to Genesis chapter 22. Genesis chapter 22, it's a familiar story of a guy by the name of Abraham being called to give up something that was precious to him. Genesis chapter 22, the words will be on the screen. I'll start here in verse 1, and it says this. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, here I am, he answered. Take your son, he said, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. Go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. The text starts off with these words, after these things. After what things? I think that this story only makes sense if you go back and look at the entire life of Abraham. So here are the things that take place. In Genesis chapter 12, God initiates a relationship with Abraham and tells him that he's going to make his name great, that he's going to make this man who has a barren wife, the father of many nations, and all the earth is going to be blessed through this man. And what we see in the 10 chapters that follow is Abraham in a conflicted relationship with God. What do I mean? Uh, I mean that he believes God, kind of. He spends his time in what seems like this on-again, off-again relationship with God. In Genesis chapter 15, he goes and starts to complain to God and says, God, you told me that you would do this for me, but it's taken a lot longer than you said. And God says, just trust me. And he does. But then, over the course of the next 25 years, here's the track record of his life. Two times, at least, 
Abraham, in disbelief that God is really the source of his security, uh, essentially prostitutes his wife to protect his life and his stuff. Battling infertility, feeling like God is not going to keep his word, Abraham and his wife decide that he's going to have a baby by somebody else to help God out some. And then Sarah gets mad once she has her own kid and is tired of, and, and is tired of him paying child support. So she essentially sends them both out into the desert, the slave and his wife, to die. So we see this man, this father of the faith, struggled with faith to really trust God. And now near the end of his life, it starts here and it says that God, look here in verse 1, after those things, God tested Abraham. And here's what I want you to know. Uh, There's only one person that knows this is a test and his name is not Abraham. In order for it to be a test of faith, It had to defy logic. It didn't make sense. This test is about this impossible surrender. God tells him to give up his son. And here, this word son is pregnant. What's captured in his son is this. His son is is all of his hope realized. His son being alive is the tangible representation that God himself had favor on him and his wife. It's the embodiment of hope. It's the proof of God's love. His son being alive is the expectation of future blessing, that one day the world will be blessed so long as this son stays alive. His son being alive was a good thing because it's part of God's story. So he must have felt that his son was safe because God had skin in the game with his son being alive. Worst of all, God came to Abraham with this. His son is not the result of him sitting around one day and said, God, I really want you to make my name great, to use me for your story. God came to him and got his hopes up. God came to him and placed this son near and dear to his heart. And then God tells him to give it up. I'm saying all of this because this is what makes following God so hard and so impossible. That when it comes to testing our faith, God is ruthless. And ruthless may seem like a wrong word, but it feels so right to say it. God is ruthless with the things that he asks for. There's nothing. And I mean absolutely nothing off limits. He sets the rules. He knows what's inside of us. There's no poker face that we can play to make him seem like we really don't want this thing so he won't ask for it. God knows what's near and dear to our hearts oftentimes because it's the very thing that he's placed there. And he doesn't want the easiest. And he's not just going to back off. And here's what we do. When God threatens, it seems like to steal the source of our joy. 
we want to fight with him. I don't know how it fits together, so I'm not going to comply. We'll say that we trust him. Well, I'll do what you say, but I'll complain the whole way because I think you're making a mistake. Or we'll comply and start, and then as soon as things get really hard, we won't finish and we'll turn back. And what I want to do is I want to look at the story of a man who doesn't do that and ask why. Genesis 22, verse 1 and 2, right? This is that test. God starts off. God calls him to give up his son. And then verse 3 says this, look. So Abraham got up early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took with him two of his young men and his son Isaac. He split wood for a burnt off offering and set out to go to the place that God had told him about. Here's what I want you to see. That word so is the same word that's used for therefore, right? It's cause and effect. Something takes place, therefore this takes place. God calls him to do this impossible thing. And do you know what's in between God's call and his obedience? Nothing. Right? There's no long drawn out story about how he fights with God. It's God called him to do this and he said I better get a good night's rest because I got to get up early in the morning to do this. Here's what faith does. Faith does at least four things, and we're going to walk through this quick. Faith begins without delay. Faith begins without delay. God calls. He willingly surrenders. There's no story of struggle here. Two, here's what else faith does. Faith speaks confidently even when it doesn't see completely. Faith speaks confidently, even when it doesn't see completely. Look here at verses 5 through 8. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. The boy and I will go over there to worship. Look, then we'll come back to you. You see that? He, he tells them, we're both going to go. I'm going to do what God says. And we are both going to come back. All he knew was that God planned the future around Isaac. And God called him to give up Isaac. He didn't know how it would work out. The forecast was cloudy, but God's character was clear. Faith speaks completely. Faith speaks confidently, even when it doesn't see completely. Look here at verse 7. Then Isaac spoke to his father and said... My father, and he replied, here I am, my son. Isaac said, Dad? We got fire. We got wood. You got a knife. If I didn't know any better, I would think that you was about to sacrifice me. Ha, ha, ha. Why aren't you laughing? And look at what he says here in verse 8. God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. Then the two of them walked together. Faith speaks confidently even when it doesn't see completely. God himself will provide. What he's saying is his speech isn't dependent on how much of the plan he knows. His speech is dependent on the plan giver. 
Here's the third thing that we see. Faith is resolved to finish without hesitation. Faith is resolved to finish without hesitation, to complete what he starts. Verse 9, when they arrived at the place that God had told him about, Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood. He bound his son Isaac and placed him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. Do you remember when you were young and you got talked into going up on the like high board to dive off and you said, hey, I'm going to do it on the count of three. And, you know, your friends start to count. And they say one, two. And you say, whoa, whoa stop, 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 stop. Yeah, you're moving too, too fast. One, <laughs> one and a half, two, two and three quarters, two and nine. Ten. You put things off. Abraham gets there. He does all of what God has called him to do. And he's so ready that God has to send a divine messenger to speak to him emphatically, right? When somebody's name is repeated twice, it's with emphasis. It's like yelling. And he stops him. He was so convinced of what God had told him to do that he was ready to do it without hesitation. And lastly, faith helps us see common things with new eyes and grateful hearts. Verse 12, then he said, do not lay a hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your only son from me. Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught in the thicket by its thorns. Look, so Abraham went and took the ram and offered it as a burnt offering in place of his son and Abraham named that place the Lord will provide so today it is said it will be provided on the Lord's mountain here's why I say faith helps us to see common things with new eyes and grateful hearts God gave him the instruction to give up his son once his son was spared there was no further instruction to offer anything to the Lord so he sees this ram And he didn't have to do anything. He could have just gone down. But now he sees this as a divine blessing and substitute to God. And now he wants to give God his best. He wants to give God this grateful heart. So what we see here in this story is a man of unwavering confidence in an impossible scenario ready to give God everything. And you may say, John, uh, let's go through those four points more. Tease those out. Instruction. Help me know how I do all of those things. I want to. Um, uh, uh, I want to begin without delay. I want to speak confidently, e- even when I don't see completely. I want all of those things. And what I want to help us see is this: if we read all this, look at the way that he lived his life, and then just try to to do that, you're not going to be able to do it. You may look and say, John, this is an inspiring story. It's very inspiring that the father of the Christian faith, respected by both Christians and Muslims, would do this. However, John, it's just inspiring. I don't have what he had. 
I didn't hear audibly from God. There was no in, instruction. No angel has ever come down and told me what I should do. John, I don't have what he has. And I would say to that, you're right and you're wrong. You don't have what he has, not because you have less, but because you have more. Here's what I mean. All right. So we're starting the, the new year. Uh, most of us in here may start to try to read your Bibles all the way through. Let me give you a quick tip. Uh, your Bible will not make sense unless you know the point of the whole thing, right? So it's not like a movie where, ah, you told me the end, you spoiled it for me. No, it's unlike that. It's unless I tell you the end, none of it's going to make sense, right? So this whole thing is meant to point to Jesus, right? So we may look and read stories of, this, of these great things that folks have done, uh, but what we have is insight into their motivation. So it's like this. Do you remember when you grew up in school and you had those math books and you had to solve those math problems and you got to ones that were like really, really hard? What did you do? You turn to the back of the book, right? Yeah, yeah, we got a teacher right here too. Yeah, yeah, you turn to the back of the book. And if you turn to the back of the book, then you get insight into how to solve this problem. It works the same with the Bible. Hebrews chapter 11. We read it earlier. Verses 17 to 19. It says... This, look, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. He received the promises, and yet he was offering his one and only son to the one whom it had been said, your offspring will be called through Isaac. He considered God, look, Abel even to raise someone from the dead. Therefore, he received him back, figuratively speaking. Why was Abraham able to begin without delay, to speak confidently, even when he didn't see completely? Because he believed that God could raise his son from the dead. Here's what makes surrender to God possible. Surrender to God is made possible only when you believe that God can do the impossible. What makes surrender to God possible is belief that God can do the impossible. Hebrews starts out in the first chapter of the book, helps you and I see this, right? In these last days, or um, you looked at times here, stories that we have, and what we see is that uh, God spoke to people uh, regularly through signs, audible voices, dreams, wonders, all of those things. And what the author of this book starts off and says is that not that God has stopped that now, but what he's saying is that God has spoken his full and final word to us in his son. So it's saying that we have a more complete revelation about what God has called us to do, what God wants from us, 
right here in this book. It's not dependent on a dream or an audible voice from God. So when we talk about what does God want from me, that's all found here in this book. So in one sense, you have more than Abraham did. So that means, right, that none of us should walk out of this room and say, I've got an inkling that God has called me to sacrifice my children. Regardless of how bad they are, that's not in here, right? We check all of what we think God has called us to do up against his word. And you say, John, once again, that's nice, that's great. All right, in order for me to give God to surrender. I have to believe that God can do the impossible. The problem is I don't believe. And we have to say, how did Abraham get this belief? His deep confidence and belief that God can do the impossible. Where did it come from? I think it came from all of his failures. And so here's what I mean by this. You look at his life and what we have of his life up until now is every one of his failures being used as a faith builder. His failures being used as a backdrop to show God's faithfulness. This test comes at the end of his life, not at the start of his life. Only after a bunch of other failed tests. Only after complaining that God wouldn't come through on his word to God miraculously giving him a child. Feeling that his security, he couldn't trust it in God's hands. So what he had to do to be secure was sacrifice the dignity of his wife to save his wife and his things. And in each case, God came through and said, I'm not going to let you do that. I'm going to protect both you and her and the people that would have done you wrong. Failures and his sin in this case were met with God's faithfulness. And even in failing, his faith was built. It's the start of a new year. It's January 6th. So most of us that have said that we're going to be in the gym are still in the gym. So I think this one will apply. When you go to the gym and you start a new program, uh, there's some reps or some exercises that say this. uh, Do three sets of 10 reps. So you get under the bench, you do 10, you know, you rest, you do 10, you do rest. No, you do 10 and then you rest. But then there's some things where you get um, and it says uh, do three sets until failure. And you say, well, this is dumb, right? And you do it, and it's hard, and you fail. And then the next time, you do it, and it's hard, and then you fail quicker. And the next time, you do it, and it's hard, and you fail even quicker than you did the last time, and you immediately feel like a failure. But it's actually in that failure that your muscles are being strengthened. So what God has done with this man's life is God has called him to do things, and he's failed, and he's failed, and he's failed. He's had idols. He's surrendered the wrong things. Here's what I want you to know. Here's what I want us to see and just move on when it comes to this concept of surrender. 
everybody surrenders. Everybody sacrifices. That's how you and I live life, right? We have things that are valuable, right? So say money. If you never sacrifice your money, do you know what will take place? You will starve to death because you cannot eat money. You get to a place where you say, I have this money. I have this thing that's valuable. I want to live. So therefore, I will sacrifice my money in order to get food, the things that, that's going to fill me up to live. Yeah, yeah, does that make sense? Idolatry. Idols. Right? There's two ways that we can see what they are. One is this. You are willing to sacrifice the right thing for a wrong thing. So you're willing to sacrifice your standards for a relationship. You are willing to sacrifice your family's health for your own status, achievement, and worth. You are willing to sacrifice God's agenda for your life for your agenda for your life. You're willing to sacrifice your dignity as one being made in the Im- image of God for temporary uh, approval, status, sex, fill in the blank. That's what we call sin. Giving myself completely to something that is not God. Idols come up in another way as well. Being unwilling to give up the right things to the right someone. So it's not just saying I give the right things to the wrong someone, but it's saying I'm unwilling to give of good things to God. So I will not give God my will. I will not give God my money. I will not give God my agenda. I will not give God my free time. I will not give God my family. I will not give God my son. And what we find out is that as we've looked through 2018, we can look at all the times that we failed. Did 2018 break you down? Did you feel like you took steps backwards in your relationship with God instead of forwards? Did you do things that you said you would never do? Did you fail in ways that you never thought that you would? I want you to know that sometimes it's our failures that help us to make forward progress. God doesn't just use them. It's not like God comes, God has come into 2019 and said, man, John really made a mess of his life in 2018. Let me me take what he has and pick up the pieces. No, we serve a God that chooses to use failures and the worst of them to display his faithfulness. Again, you may say, John, this is nice and helpful, but it's easier said than done. Abraham already saw God redeem a hundred years worth of failures. I haven't seen God redeem those same failures in my life. I don't believe that he can. 
And I don't believe that it's worth it for me to sacrifice and give it all up. You may feel like that God calling you to give up that thing, that relationship, that job, that friendship, that pattern is you getting the short end of the stick. If anything about the future, doing what God has called you to do, seems cloudy and it causes you to feel uncertain, let me help you see that the Lord Jesus helps to wipe all those clouds away. Here's what I mean by that. Do you remember how I said this book doesn't make sense until you read the end or you know the point of it? Um, The point of Genesis 22 and any other story in this Bible is not for us to look at Abraham's life and say, man, he really did that. I want what he has, so let me try really hard to do what he did. The point of every story is to point to Jesus Christ in his life. So as you read the Bible... As you get to the end of a story, if you don't know how this helps you to arrive at Christ, you're shortchanging yourself and you're not reading the Bible the way that God intends for it to be led. So let let me help you with this story to help us see how Christ helps to wipe these clouds away. God shows his faithfulness through human failures. There's a principle in the Bible called this first mention. And what that means is that often... When we come to the text, the first time a concept is introduced or mentioned, we get something of a definition of what that is, right? So the Bible starts off and you see things like work, right? Work's not a bad thing. Work's not a part of the curse. Work is not a punishment. Work is a good thing that God himself does, right? Those of us in here that are workaholics say yes, but you see the same thing about rest. Rest is not a bad thing. Rest is something that God himself does. Blessing, the first time you see blessing in the Bible is Genesis 1. God makes Adam and Eve, and his first words are, and God blessed them. What have they done to get blessing? Absolutely nothing. Blessing with God doesn't come by way of us working hard and him rewarding us. Blessing is something that God gives on his own, right? As we get to Genesis chapter 22, Do you know what word we are first introduced to the first time it appears in the Bible? Love. There's aspects of the way that God loves us, but here's the first time that this word love appears. And look here at verse two. Take your son, he said. Look, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, go to the land of Moriah. And offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains. I will tell you about the very first time that we come across the word love in the Bible is in the context of a father being asked to sacrifice his only son. It helps to see the very definition of this love. It's sacrificial. It's it's costly. Does it sound familiar to you? It should, because that's the point of the Bible. God sacrificing his son. And 
But look, in this story, Abraham is spared of the agony of actually sacrificing his son. Isaac is spared of the agony of feeling abandoned by his father, the person who could have got him down off of the altar. How were they spared of that? Because of God. And what did God provide? A ram or a lamb that served as a substitute. This sacrifice that years later, God himself would give of his son, Jesus. And on the cross, it is God once again showing his faithfulness in the midst of our failures. Jesus on the cross is a testament of God's perfect justice and our sinfulness. Not wanting to give God our lives and wanting to take his as that corporately, it is the worst failure of humanity that on the cross we see something unique. Me and a group of guys have started to read this book on the crucifixion this year, and one of the things that the author Fleming Rutledge brings up is that as we look at the Bible, um, it's not just important that we know that Christ died, but the Bible makes it a point to tell us how he died. Right? Think of any other martyr, somebody that died, and what we think of is that person. We don't necessarily think of the form in which they died. So when we refer to the assassination, we say, ah, uh, uh, of who? Yeah, Lincoln, Martin Luther King. When we refer to the beheading, uh, uh, who? There's a bunch of folks that are like that. Even though there are a bunch of people that have been crucified, when we refer to the crucifixion, it's Jesus that comes to mind. And in the crucifixion, it was a form of punishment that was meant to dehumanize the person. It was meant to take somebody and to say, it's not just that we don't like you and want you dead. is we so dislike you that we want to treat you as worse than scum, brutalize you, and put you up for everybody else to see and approve of. You talk about a failure. The best man to ever walk the face of this earth got the worst death that has ever existed. As a substitute. Not for his failings, but for ours. And so what the cross does is it testifies to God's perfect justice, but it also testifies to his unfailing love that when it comes to that fate, what God would do is he would provide a substitute to take that so that you wouldn't have to, so that I wouldn't have to, so that we wouldn't have to. When it comes to sacrifice, God knows something about sacrifice that we never will. When it comes to sacrifice and giving up Everything, not just your life, but even your reputation, your name, your dignity. Jesus gave all of that up 
for you and for God's glory. So now, as we talk about how we live or what Christ has done for us, here's what I want you to see. We don't just leave out of here saying, all right, now I really need to try hard to do what he did. The testimony of the Bible is the way that we take hold of that, that the big truth that's shared here is not just that you and I are to imitate Christ. It's that we actually have a union with him. That Jesus does not just come down and tell us the way to get to God. He is the way to God. For all of our failures, he doesn't just tell us how we can pay God back. He is the payment back to God. So it's not about our effort. It's not about our striving. It's about our faith. Did what he really do pay for my sins? Did what he really do communicate God's perfect love for me in the midst of my failures. If it did, then I can have peace with God that this God doesn't just tell us how we're to live when it seems like God threatens our joy and takes away what's most valuable to us. This God sends his son to climb into that very suffering on our behalf for us as a sign of God's love. Hear what the Apostle Paul has to say about this as we close. And he says this, yo, what then are we to say about these things? If God's for us, who's against us? He didn't even spare his own son, but offered him up for us all. How will he not also with him grant us everything? Who can bring an accusation against God's elect? Or when you feel like a failure because of your sin and you feel condemned, what he's saying is for those of us that have placed our faith in Christ and said, yes, what Christ did is true. And I know that in some way his death counted as my death, that if that's true for us, he says this, that there's no room for condemnation because it's God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more has been raised. He's also sitting at the right hand of God, interceding for us, pleading for us, praying for us right now that God would give us the faith to believe that he can do the impossible so that we can surrender things that only seem like they're impossible because of our lack of faith. And the way that this came into the world was through our failures. What makes surrender possible is the belief that God can do the impossible. What we don't need is four more steps to strong faith. What we need for a new year is a renewed faith in the God of the Bible, in this God. God's past faithfulness against the backdrop of our failures, every one of them, is the thing that's meant, is the thing that he wants to use to build our faith here in this next year so that the things that we know that he's called us to let go of for his sake and his glory, we can do that. And so what I want to challenge us to do, church, as we start this new year, for the past three and a half years, four and a half years since we've been planning this church, 
once a month, we gather as a church to pray. And in prayer, it is a time where we are sacrificing of our time, things that we can do, our agendas. And the act of prayer is saying, Lord, I am laying my agenda down and I am asking that you would give me a new one. Attendance is sporadic week in and week out. And so what I would just say is, you know, at the top of the year, as we're already in the spirit of making resolutions, here's one that I want to make, want, want you to make for this year. Be at the first prayer gathering. You don't have to agree to be at all of them. Be at the first one this Wednesday. So you can start off your new year, set a goal and accomplish that goal. At the end of the day, it may be the only one that you see all the way through, but it's an easy one for you to do. And here's what I want us to do as a church. On Wednesday, if you feel so led, we want to take time as a church and fast and pray. There's nothing magical about fasting. Fasting is this. It's, it's, it's saying, all right, I'm depriving myself of food that I may very well need to survive. And I'm saying, at least for this time, Lord, I want to be reminded that it is you that keeps me alive, not just the things that I consume. And it helps to get our hearts in a posture where we're reminded and focused on God. And so on Wednesday, what I would love for us to do as a church is to spend time fasting and praying about things. You know the things that God has called you to give up. You're aware of things that you may feel in your heart have too much of your heart, whether it's money or approval or relationships or security or being wanted or children or status. You know what those things are. My prayer is Wednesday. Take the day, fast, pray about those things. Join us here on Wednesday night. And what we'll do as a church is we'll gather, we'll worship, we'll pray about those things together. We'll seek God's will for us as a church for this new year. And then we'll eat together and fill ourselves up, one on God's goodness through the way he answers prayer and the goodness of whatever pizza that we bring here, and the goodness of Christian fellowship. Join us here on Wednesday. Let's pray that God would renew our faith so that we can begin without delay, speak confidently even when we don't see completely, and finish without hesitation. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful that you are a God that does the impossible. You've done it routinely And you've done it ultimately in your son, Father. You have made a way for sinful men to have a perfect relationship with you through no effort of our own, Father. I pray that that act that Christ has done in the past would be forever present in our hearts. And you would give us the faith that we need to surrender the things that you called for. Would you remind us, Father, that if we give you everything, we lose absolutely nothing. I pray that truth would settle deep into our hearts. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.